You are listening to another special episode of the Oscar Podcast. Special episodes happen every other week and are generally shorter, feature interviews and talks that we've previously recorded at Springtide events, and sometimes touch on more current events and politics. Springtide is an organization that teaches and researches about politics and democracy in Nova Scotia, and it's the organization responsible for producing the Offscript podcast. This week, we're headed back in time again to the very first public event Springtide ever hosted. If you listened to our previous special episode, you will have heard some of the tape from an event held in September of 2013 called The After Party, a discussion on the future of parliamentary democracy in Canada. We asked our guests, all current and former politicians, to talk about the role they see for political parties in the future of Canadian democracy. Last week, we shared the opening remarks from all the speakers that participated, and this week we'll share some of the discussion from that event. The speakers you will hear in the discussion are Brent Rathgaber, a conservative then turned independent MP from Alberta, Elizabeth May, leader of the Green Party, Graham Steele, former MLA and cabinet minister, and Danny Graham, the former liberal leader and former MLA for Halifax, and uh, Danny is the only person at this event who wasn't a sitting politician at the time. You'll hear one other voice on this week's podcast, and that's from the moderator for this event, Stephanie Domet, who was recording it for CBC Main Street. Here she is kicking off the discussion. Thank you to all our panelists. Brent, to what degree do you think it is to the benefit of parties that that it seems many Canadians don't fully apprehend the ins and outs of our parliamentary system. 100%. I mean, I think if people had a better understanding of what goes on inside Parliament, inside legislatures, inside caucuses, caucus rooms, cabinet rooms, um, I don't think they would tolerate it. The, um, you know, Elizabeth told an interesting anecdote where a member of one of the organized parties looked back and asked, you know, how do you know how to vote? And this is how I know, because the whip handed me a sheet. I mean, I've, uh, I can, I can one-up you. I've seen, I've seen incidents in the Conservative caucus where people were actually confused as to how to vote, because not only did, had they not read the bills, they could, hadn't even read the voting instructions properly. <laughs> if, if what you're describing is accurate, Brent, why do MPs stand for it? Well... As I said in my opening notes, I mean, there, I think there's two factors of it. The powers that be, the center, the, the, you know, the PMO, whatever you want to call it, they actually encourage backbench members to feel like and be part of the team. And there's great comfort, and, and to, to use the sports analogy, people tend to be, want to be part of winning teams. I mean, you see this um, three or four years ago when the, the, the going concern was backbench MPs running around the country handing out these novelty checks with the big conservative C on it. And government backbenchers are fond of using words that I just, I, I cringe every time I hear it. Our government. Our government did this. Our government did that. No. Well, I guess it's all of our government. But it's no more that backbench MP's government than it is your government or, or your government. It's all of our government. So, But the powers that be encourage people to feel like they're part of the team. And that team... Um, winning is is the goal. You draw the analogy of the game, and winning elections and re-winning elections are the ultimate goal of team playership. And so that's why why backbenchers do it. And the second one is career advancement. I mean, I knew a long time ago that I was unlikely to ever move off the back benches. There's just so many. There's only so many cabinet spots for middle-aged, pasty, overweight, white anglophones from Alberta. <laughs> So, 
when, once, you once you resign to your fate on the back benches, it becomes a lot easier to be a constructive critic of a government and, and criticize Bevoda on her orange juice and all the cabinet ministers on their ridiculous limousines that they use uh, to get from, from Confederation Building to Centre Block, which takes about four minutes on the bus. Um, but, but if you, the, if you want to be, more... if you want to be a parliamentary secretary, or if you want to be a minister, or even if you want to go on those on those prize parliamentary junkets to to NATO and to into European Commonwealth, you got to be part of the team because when you go offside, you stay in the back benches and your name is excluded from the junkets. But there must be more guys like you than there are cabinet ministers. So so why don't we see more backbenchers in any party? Or more, you know, rank and file MPs. Well, I think. I mean, I think standing up. Certainly, there are more backbenchers than there are members of, uh, at the cabinet table. But I think most members of parliament aspire to move to the middle and then to the front benches. Mm -hmm. And if that's your dream, if you if your dream is to sit at the cabinet table, I am the wrong person to emulate, because <laughs> I did everything wrong. But if if your if your goal is to hold Parliament to account and to represent your constituents, I think I did a lot a lot less things wrong. But I think, and I think part of it is public perception and part of it is the media. I mean, I, I know members of the Alberta Legislature and members of Parliament who have been members for you know four terms, sixteen years, and the media will ask them, "So uh, you're still a backbencher? What's up with that?" Well, there's great value in being a member of parliament if you, if you find value in holding government to account. But if you, if you equate success in this business as upward mobility, moving from the mid to the front benches, and a lot of people do, and a lot of members of the media do, then backbenchers will be motivated to move forward and they'll do what the party operatives tell them to because that's the shortest route to advancement. Elizabeth, message control in many ways is the essence of the modern age, not just the Prime Minister's office. Why shouldn't governments have the ability to, to present their version of the work that they've done? Okay, Stephanie, you, you made the mistake that so many people do, and I hate to pick on you, but governments don't do that. Uh, political party leaders' offices and what the political machinations of the sort of hyper-partisanship that I think is the threat to democracy. So message control, and, and Brent's giving you examples, and it's not a word of a lie. I mean, I've actually, because I spend all my time in Parliament, I, I should give you a little insight in my life as a mem member of Parliament, being the only Green, I cover everything, and also I had to squish a lot of people in my office. So it's an office designed for three people. I've got eight in there. So there's no room for me to have a desk in my office on Parliament Hill. So I work exclusively from my desk in the House of Commons. So I'm there all the time, which means that I hear all the speeches, which means that I recognized when I was hearing whole paragraphs verbatim over and over again from conservatives who didn't realize they'd been handed the same speeches, they'd cut and pasted too fast, whole sections of Peter Kent's speech repeated by Joe Oliver about things that were going to happen in Bill C-38, and I knew they hadn't read the bills because those things weren't in C-38. So it was, it was, it, it, it's a horrible moment. Message discipline, and again, going back to the media, to Danny's point, the idea of message discipline, the media is constantly praising political leaders who can hold their caucus to message discipline. Uh, Andrew Coyne made this piece in an excellent article that could have been written for tonight's forum. It's in the Walrus right now. And he ends by saying, if we're going to have members of parliament speak on their own two feet of what they care about and actually speak to real issues without being scripted, we have to stop the media from then saying, that is a maverick. That caucus is in revolt. Instead of saying, oh, member of parliament does their job. Now, that's paraphrasing Andrew Coyne. Message control and message discipline is antithetical to democracy.
How can it possibly be a good thing? It's the branding exercise that, uh, from, and I, I, Graham made a number of good points, but democracy is not about teams, and democracy should not be about uh, a branding exercise that essentially means once the election's over, turn it over to the prime minister to run everything. We can all go home. Why waste your time with parliament? Graham, who, who needs structure and predictability, as you said? Is it politicians, voters, the media? Uh, I think the voters do. Uh, well, everybody does. But let me, let me give you an example. A lot of people, I'm, I'm surprised nobody's raised yet. Whenever you talk about political parties, somebody always says, aha, none of it. <laughs> Because none of it doesn't have political parties. Everybody runs as an independent. And everybody says, well, why can't we be more like none of it? Well, partly the reason for that is because their constituencies are really, really small. And I looked it up today. And the, the person in the last none of it election, by the way, the, uh, an election's been called in none of it. doesn't get nearly as much attention as other elections down south. I think they're voting on October 28th. The, the person with the highest total number of votes in the last Nunavut election had 439 votes. That was the biggest vote-getter in the entire territory. And there's another member of their assembly who was elected with 152 votes. Um, so you can see that the whole scale is different. When you can literally, in the course of a campaign, sit down for tea with every single voter... It's just, it's different. Now, Elizabeth, I looked this up, in her last election, had to care about 91,000 voters, of whom 69,000 actually cast their vote, and 32,000 voted for her. I had tea with all of them. (laughs) (laughs) She reads all the legislation. She has tea with all the voters. No wonder she's parliamentarian of the year. And and Brent similarly had 97,000 eligible, 54,000 who voted, and 34,000 who voted for him. So the whole scale is different. If you're running for the U.S. uh, House of Representatives, you're representing over 700,000 people. But you're doing that whether you're a member of a party or an independent. I mean, it doesn't change. Right, but this is the the point, is if you want to get to those people... You have to use whatever mechanisms you have, and one of the ways of doing that is to have a team, to have a party platform, to have a leader who speaks on behalf of the entire party and can speak to all of your voters at the same time. And one of the reasons, there are others, but one of the reasons why independents in Canada over and over and over get crushed in elections is because they do not have the means of getting their message out and connecting with the voters. And one of the things that's puzzled me, in in my elections when I go to the doorsteps, and I've been on thousands of doorsteps in my political career, by far the most common issues that people raise with me are municipal issues, Mm -hmm. right? Because that's what really matters to people, is what's going on on their street, right in front of their house, garbage collection, snow removal, street cleaning, police, all that kind of stuff. And yet the turnout in municipal elections is scandalously low. And I think at least part of the reason for that is because all of our councillors run as independents. They do not have the means to get their message out, get their platform out, so that most voters don't know who the candidates are and don't know what they stand for. So I think uh, messaging, working as a team, works very well, especially 
the more voters you're trying to reach. Danny, is government the right place to turn for transformative change? It's one part of... uh, Government's one part of where the change needs to happen. I think that um, the place where I would place... There, there is commonly considered to be three legs to the, re, to the stool of democratic renewal. There is uh, parliamentary reform, uh, the subject of which we're talking about today with respect to party discipline. There's electoral reform, how do we elect our people? And there's uh, public or citizen engagement. And for my money, I'm actually more interested in the public engagement question. I think that what Joseph Howe and others were talking about was really that there is collective wisdom in all of us, the great unwashed, to be, uh, uh, to be wiser, better able to anticipate the future than the elite few. Uh, there is a book written by James Sirowicki called The Wisdom of Crowds, and there's been a, some other research in this area that reflects the notion that Together, through the ecology and diversity of all of us, we actually are, can make better decisions than we can uh, in those elite pockets of the Prime Minister's office and others. So for me, I think that we need to fundamentally rethink the relationship. And that has a commensurate responsibility associated with it for citizens to step into a place of responsibility in, uh, in, this, occasion, in this equation. <laughs> And what if citizens don't want to be brought to the center of discussion, as they, as they often seem not to want? Well, they seem not to want because they've never really been engaged. We, they've, they've been, there's never been a conversation with our citizens. We've got uh, citizen juries. If you look at jurisdictions all across North America and in Europe and other places, they're moving towards processes between elections that actually engage citizens in critical questions. Uh, citizen juries, citizen assemblies, um, lots of other processes that actually invite the wisdom into the room, uh, deliberative polling and the like. So if we create a culture where people actually feel empowered, then I think we're, we will move to a place where they will say, if I show up at that uh, public meeting, something might come of it. My voice will be heard instead of marking an X with 69,000 other people in Surrey. Um, so. And so what do you do to make democratic reform sexy? You said that it was unsexy. I think probably well, even I, the, nerd, the nerdiest of nerds here will agree. Um, so, so there are a couple of pieces that I think get us into it. We can say to the politicians, you know and we know that in order to uh, move big ideas forward, you need for a more engaged citizenry, which means they need to understand the significant, in Nova Scotia, demographic, economic, social and other challenges that we have, the public's having a difficult, the, the political leaders are having a, a difficult time getting that message out if there were others who were able to sort of say in, in a less partisan way, we've got serious problems. We've got real opportunities in Nova Scotia, but we've got serious problems. That's one. And then we might also say that there is a space between uh, the sometimes insidious polling that happens mm-hmm. when our phone rings and people are asking these wedge kind of question, how do you feel about crime, how do you feel about taxes, Uh, how do you feel about power rates and those kinds of things. I mean, that's not a particularly democratic process, and then they run out in front of it and say, well, our view is X, Y, and Z that's intended to follow the polling. Or you have protests where people are just frustrated, like 
uh, Idle No More or Occupy or the Montreal Movement. There's something in between where we can generatively actually have conversations like this one. Thank you, Mark. Uh, where we get into the issues and have a participatory process where people are animating what they really think and feel about at a deeper and broader level than we have to this date. It's hard for a lot of people to get there. I mean, everything in our culture tells us to go to sleep, right? And a cynical person would say politicians actually don't want voters to be too engaged. This is a paradigm shift, if, and, and it's going to take time. And we need, to, we need to take this as a responsibility, and whether it's sexy or not, it's important. And I think for the sake, if, if you think that uh, the future for our children matters in education or health, if you think that the fiscal challenges we have in this, problem, in this province are real, if, if you think that in order to change the, how we prosper in Nova Scotia, we need to change the demographics, we need to focus more on immigration and those sorts of things, we need citizens to be saying this in addition to some of the people who do the policy work in order to clear the path and say we've had our opportunity and sometimes they may not even agree with the solutions that are ultimately decided on but if people feel like they've actually had a stake in something I think that they'll stand behind it. Elizabeth? I just wanted to jump in on this because what we see so often, and, and, and Danny touched on this, you said some of the politicians, Stephanie, don't want us to engage. That's absolutely the case, and that's one of the things I've discovered since I got into partisan politics as leader of the Green Party that I didn't observe so much when I was in an NGO with Sierra Club. And that's what's generally the category of voter suppression strategies. There's no, no doubt in my mind that Stephen Harper has wanted to make sure that people who weren't going to go vote conservative would stay home. And so a lot of the strategies, and I'm not talking about ones that are legal, I'm talking about attack ads. I'm talking about making politics appear nasty. And so that people turn away. They Although those things did, did not start with Stephen Harper. No, attack ads outside of writ periods entirely started with Stephen Harper. Going after Stéphane Dion's personality in a non-writ period within date. And this, this is a very deliberate effort, not to win over more supporters to the Conservative Party, but to depress and reduce the turnout for, in that case, the Liberal leader. So the, the suite of measures that are called voter suppression, and pollsters talk about them, are deliberately in, in, engaged to reduce voter turnout. And the other part, culturally, that Danny touched on, I just want to we, the words we use matter. And our culture, for a couple of decades, has referred to consumers, which is a very passive term, and taxpayers, which is a transactional term. The term citizens, active, engaged citizens, is used much less than it was in a different generation. Mm -hmm. Even 10 years ago. Yeah. Brent, what can citizens do to reverse the trend of messaging of parties over policy? Well, I agree that dialogues like the one we're having here tonight is the, you know, is the start. But we have to go out and you're, you're in an election writ period. And I think you have to demand more from your representatives. You have to demand more than somebody's going to go to, what's the capital called to The provincial... Legislature. The legislature, you call yeah. it the province, province house? house. Province house, yeah. Province house, or to parliament, or to the Alberta legislature, or wherever. You have to demand that they're going to be more than the mouthpiece for the party under whose banner they ran. And I agree, certainly during election periods, that parties have great purpose and great function. They allow people to understand the issues, boil them down into um, discernible bits that people can easily understand, and there's economies of scale. In a, in a city like Edmonton or a city like Halifax, is each candidate going to take out a half-page ad 
setting out the exact same policy? No. They'll pool their resources if they're like-minded and uh, try to get their message out. So I, I fully appreciate and understand uh, the value and benefit of parties in the electoral process, but that has to stop to some extent when the election's over and governing begins. And I, I'm not, I'm not anti-party. Um, I'm not. What I believe, and what I think most of the members of this panel believe, is that parties are too strong and they have to be uh, brought back into control so that certainly outside of, of writ periods, um, the elected members are accountable to their constituents, not accountable to their party whips, party leaders, uh, central command and control structures, and I, I think it's up to citizens to demand that. Uh, we're going to move shortly to the questions uh, that are coming in on index cards. But before we do that, I want to hear from each of you, you know, one or two fixes. What do we, what do, we do? What do we do, Graham? <laughs> you had a lot of questions, and I think you probably have some I, answers to those questions. I think I'll uh, keep it brief and say that I, I truly believe what some of the other speakers said, that the answer is not to try and fix our politicians or to try and fix our political parties, but the answer lies with the citizen and the voter. And For example, um, I personally pay no attention to what anybody says during an election campaign. <laughs> That's the worst way to make a decision. But then I'm in a privileged position where, because I'm involved in politics day to day, I know exactly who these people are, I know exactly what they're all about, I know exactly what they're likely to do, if they, uh, if they form a government. So I don't need them to tell me. The whole campaign, I shouldn't, I shouldn't generalize like this. This is what gets me in trouble. This is being recorded for broadcast yeah. on CBC Radio. Yeah. Okay, the, 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 the difficulty comes when a, a great deal of campaigning is aimed at citizens who are only tuning in for a brief period. And that's not to blame citizens because they're busy with their lives, their families, their work, the troubles that they have, everything that keeps them busy. Politics is not an uppermost in their minds. But because they only tune in for a few days or a few weeks during an election campaign, they're particularly susceptible to being taken in um, by some of the tactics that we've talked about or being, or being the victim of uh, voter suppression, which I think is a disgraceful, uh, relatively new, but absolutely disgraceful evolution in, in, in politicking and campaigning. Um, and, and the answer to all of this is citizens who don't just tune in for a short period but know enough about what's going on and have observed steadily over time that they're not, they're not subject to, the, to the, uh, the black arts of the, of the campaign. Danny? Well, I mentioned public engagement. The only other thing that I would say that's related to that is uh, more springtide kind of events like this. Let's have a public conversation that goes broad and goes deep into what we want in our democratic processes. Let's have open minds. Let's not judge even the people who are in the offices right now. Let's make sure that the conversation is objective and we're focused on all the challenges that we have and all the opportunities that we have. So these kinds of conversations and making them viral is really... Uh, I think the, the, the start of changing culture around that relationship between citizens and government. Elizabeth. I, think I want to identify that I think the culprit here is hyper-partisanship. I mean, the Greens in Germany, uh, Petra Kelly, who formed the German Green Party, described it as the anti-party party. That's when I knew I'd be happy here. Uh, but the, 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 the solutions lie in 
bringing down hyperpartisanship, and I agree with Brent, we shouldn't be having uh, political spin doctors determining the messaging from MPs when we're not in an election cycle. It's outrageous. Solutions involve electoral reform, get rid of first past the post, have proportional representation, remove the leader's signature. Oh, thank you. There. The, the first clout that a political party leader was given in Canada to discipline a caucus came about by accident when Elections Canada put the name of the party on the ballot next to the name of the candidate for the very reasons that Graham's mentioned earlier. People won't know everybody as well in that riding anymore, big populations. The leader's signature should not be required on nomination papers. I have a private my, member's bill on this. That was my yeah. answer. Oh, you can do <laughs> And then also, the, the caucus should be allowed to instigate a leader review, which happens in every other Westminster parliamentary democracy, but not Canada. Canada, and restore the independence and professional civil service and respect them as nonpartisan and don't allow what we now call the guys in the short pants at PMO to go beating up on civil servants and give the same financial benefits for donations to independents that political parties now get, which is one reason independents don't do so well. Uh, Brent, did Elizabeth leave any crumbs for you? <laughs> Well, I just want, I just want to uh, follow up. She did take one of my answers, or a couple, actually. <laughs> you, had a, you had quite an exhaustive list there. But Elizabeth was correct when she talked about the, uh, the evolution or the devolution of parliamentary power going first into cabinet and then more recently into the prime minister's office. And it, it happened around 1970, 1969. And it, it's no coincidence, in my view, that it was a 1970 or 71 amendments to the Election Act that requires a party leader to sign a candidate's nomination forms. I, I think that's not, not a coincidence. Incidents. No backbench member of parliament, no frontbench member of parliament will cross his party leader for fear that he is committing electoral suicide because his leader will not sign his nomination papers and that individual is done. And, and I think we have to go back to the pre-1970 amendments to the elect Election Act that to take away the requirement that a leader sign the party. And in, or the, that a leader signed the nomination. Another one um, specific to the Conservative Party in Britain, they have what they call the 1922 Committee, which is a committee of backbenchers, backbenchers exclusively. Uh, cabinet ministers, I understand, can now attend, but they can't speak or vote, um, as opposed to caucus meetings where n nobody gets to speak or vote <laughs> except, except the party leadership. Um, the 1922 Committee has been very, was very, very instrumental in the, in the uh, uh, demise of Margaret Thatcher uh, and, p and picking every political leader of the Conservative Party since then. We saw in, in uh, uh, Australia just in the last th three months uh, Julian Gillard, uh, did I pronounce that correct? Julia, yeah. Um, deposed by uh, Kevin Rudd, who he, she had deposed him about three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. So you have caucuses that, where the leadership is actually accountable to the caucus as opposed to the situation that we have in Ottawa and I suspect in Halifax where the caucus is very much answerable to the leadership. Okay, well, thank you very much, panelists. Um, we'll move on to, to some of these questions uh, that have come in from our very attentive and thoughtful audience. So the first one is about... Uh, proportional representation uh, and the question is it's clear we cannot change the current political system by electing members of current political parties uh, under our first past the post system when will proportional representation be an election issue what would it take to make it an election issue me getting in the leaders debate <laughs> The 
the other par- the other parties aren't likely to raise it because even when they say it's like right now, the the we had a referendum in British Columbia, and even though it's official NDP policy to favor proportional representation, the BC NDP actually contributed to the anti. Uh, single transferable vote campaign, and so did the BC Liberal Party, which is not the same as the Nova Scotia Liberal Party or the Federal Liberal Party, because they're really their incentive there. Because it, the BC provincial situation has evolved as more or less a two-party system, hmm. and they don't want to see uh, anybody else getting any traction in single transferable vote or mixed-member proportional. Uh, the way it could become an election issue would be if there was cooperation between the Greens, the NDP, and the Liberals in the next election campaign to say or local conservative candidates, for that matter, to say, once elected, we pledge to get rid of first-past-the-post. Brent? Yeah, Elizabeth is right. It's not in the vested interest of the current establishment to advocate anything but first-past-the-post. So to, to change the election system is going to be, require an amendment to the Election Act. And do you think a conservative majority government is going to pass a bill? I mean, any private member can bring forward a bill, but do you think it's going to pass when the uh, current system uh, benefits the current power dynamic? Not a chance. Um, so I don't, I don't, I'm not optimistic that uh, first-past-the-post is, is leaving us anytime soon. Um, but I do believe that we certainly have to have the discussion on alternate ways of electing our legislatures. I actually prefer a transferable ballot th- than a proportional representat- representation. That's only my, my personal preference. But the bigger problem than how we elect our individuals is the party system. If we had proportional representation and parties still had our clad discipline, we'd be no better off. Hmm. A- anything to add, Danny or Graham? Just, uh, that, uh, the failure for it to pass in British Columbia was a disappointment from my perspective. Um, and it was, it was done, the process was done properly. I don't know the anatomy of how it didn't pass because it invited citizens into the conversation about how it could happen. I, I think there are uh, many benefits to proportional representation generally. One needs to be careful about the different varieties of proportional representation. Some have greater advantages than others, and it's not just proportional representation generally. That's all good. It's, uh, there are varieties of it, and we should understand which ones are more effective than others. Anything to add, Graham? Okay. Uh, here's a question. What is a constituent's best defense uh, from the revolving door of big business and government, both elected and appointed? You want to take that one, Graham? <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I understand it. Can you repeat it? I think the from probably ought to be an against. What is a constituent's best defense against the revolving door of big business and government, both elected and appointed? That is, how can a citizen overcome some of those larger forces, I think? If, if that was your question and that's not what you meant, speak up. But if that is what you meant, that's sorry, the question. I don't, I don't understand the question. How can a citizen battle against those, those huge, larger resources of government and big business? Well, we have made some strides in, in that, in the, on that topic where uh, contributions to federal political parties are, are prohibited, except if you're an individual. Unions, corporations, industry associations are prohibited from donating federally. I don't know what the law is in, in Nova Scotia. Um, similarly, um, individuals can only donate to a maximum of $1,100 per year. So we're trying to take away the ability of big money and big deep pockets from overly contributing and, and to the political process and therefore affecting it unduly. Um, the lobbyist registry federally has also been, I think, quite effective, not foolproof, but quite effective in allowing the public access to what industry and what corporations have access to what ministers and to what and to what staff. So I think there's I think there has been actually improvement in in that topic 
Federally, I don't know what the rules are in Nova Scotia. Just okay. jump in. I, I really uh, support Democracy Watch, which is the only non-government organization in Canada that's really focusing on, on these issues of transparency and ethics and the revolving door issue. We have had some rules, but there's so many loopholes around cooling off periods. So, I mean, yeah, you can say, well, somebody can't go straight from PMO into a lobbying firm, but then they do, but they're told not to touch those files for six months. Or recently, the example, and I really like Merv Tweedy, he's a great guy, just resigned as MP for Brandon Service, but he chaired the Transport Committee, had hands on a lot of rail legislation, and announced he wasn't he was leaving Parliament, and he was immediately becoming CEO of a private rail company with a plan to ship bitumen by rail car to, the Hudson, to Hudson Bay. And he, it, was, it was without any cooling period because it isn't covered in the legislation. So I think we need much better legislation. We need to really uh, deal with uh, what is, and this is the bigger issue, is that it, culturally we have a corporatist agenda that is assumed to be the entire frame of reference in every election, that the job of a prime minister and, and of uh, parliament is to enhance corporate profits because the assumption is, in the same way they used to say in the U.S., if it's good for General Motors, it's good for America. Right now, if it's good for a, a, you know, an ever-growing economy, and particularly transnational profits, because we could actually have a healthier economy in Canada with more people employed, with more small businesses, more support for entrepreneurs, more value chains, more value added. It's not even the economics of it that makes sense. But culturally, we've just accepted that the corporatist agenda is what politics is all about. And I don't know if that was what the questioner meant, but the best defense for a citizen is to get really engaged, to participate as much as possible, and, you know, obviously vote green, but that's not really... (laughs) Graham, does that resonate for you as a corporatist agenda, what's driving politics? Uh, It was a really good answer. I I don't know if it answered the question. I'm still not sure I understand the question, but there there is... um, I, don't, I still don't understand the question, but I'm going to give an answer anyway. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the question period. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting. The whole topic here is about the pressure from interest groups and lobby groups and moneyed interests and corporate interests and union interests because a lot of that is going on in the background, although I have the impression that there's a lot, lot, lot more of it going on in Ottawa than there is in a provincial capital, relatively small provincial capital like like um, Halifax. Because when I talk to my finance minister colleagues across the country, I certainly learned that the Ontario Minister of Finance was subject to a lot of pressure from corporate interests. To a lesser extent, the Quebec minister, the BC minister, we're a lot smaller, mm-hmm. so there's a lot less of that. The, the only other thing that I would say is that it follows naturally that when the Premier's office or the Prime Minister's office tries to hold all of the decision-making authority in government, that's where the interest will go. So it may be that there was a lot of that stuff going on that even I, as a you know, relatively senior cabinet minister, wasn't even aware of because they would just go straight to the Premier's office, right. bypassing the individual ministers. So it may be that I just, I just don't know. But there's a lot more of that stuff going on than you ever read about in your newspaper. Um, and it's not talked about. It's, 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 it's worrisome sometimes, the, the, the moneyed interests that are, that are around. And there's a big, big battles between the government and them, and, and you don't know a thing about it. Um, it's in your book. Um, <laughs> 
but you see, what, what my book would say, <laughs> what my book would say, see, the difference between Stephanie and me is she finished her book. And also made up everything in <laughs> yeah, it. So no, no, what, but, but what, I, what I would say, if, if, if there's not much about that because there's actually, I, I felt very little about that. There are a few examples that really uh, disturb me, but what I worry about is that as a minister, just exactly what I said, uh-huh. is that because everybody recognized that the key decisions are made in the premier's office, they just went straight over my head, and I wasn't even aware that they were those conversations were going on. So, but like I said, I get the impression there's a lot more of it going on in Ottawa than there is in a relatively small provincial capital like Halifax. Danny, anything you want to add? Uh, no, uh, just a, I guess one, two small things is that if you, if to answer the question as best I can. the best defense is for somebody to join an organization that has a political voice or perhaps even join a political party, Mm -hmm. um, which um, when I was of an age, I wasn't warm to (laughs) as an idea for reasons that I won't go into right now. But once I did, I realized that uh, there are wonderful people uh, with great intentions, trying to make good things happen. And if you become one of them, your potential to make something meaningful happen may be greater than it would be if you complained from the sidelines. Can I say just a quick thing? I didn't get to say earlier, and I should have mentioned it. One of the things about being a member of Parliament is I genuinely love most of the people with whom I work, and they're all in other parties. <laughs> most people in political life are really great. They, they enter political life with a sense of wanting to do something good for their community or for their country. And that's one of the things I hate about the tyranny of the political control with a bunch of people who've never had the courage to run for office, who are these, they they really are, uh, regardless of party, a a singularly nasty group of people who want to, to, to spin everything. And they give people, these message tracks they have to stick to. I really so yearn to liberate fellow members of parliament from the tyranny of their parties telling them what they have to do and say because they'd be way better people and even better representatives of their party if they were allowed to be themselves. Well, Brent, what are the mechanisms to hold a government accountable in a majority situation? This questioner adds, in Germany, a citizen can initiate a referendum. Yeah, I I think citizens' initiative and direct democracy our ideas have come of age, certainly with the Internet and social media. Um, I, I think we're going to see movement towards citizenship engagement and direct democracy referendum plebiscite. I'm a little suspicious. I'm, I'm not – I like the concept, and I, and I think we, we are going there, and I think we need to go there. Um, in my city of Edmonton, we've had a number of municipal plebiscites go off the rails in the last decade because of big money interests, the ability for them to take out big ads and uh, distort the argument. But if the same um, rules about, in, about financial backing applied to plebiscites as apply to uh, general elections, um, I, I, think, I think there's great value. But t- to answer your question, in a majority government, as Elizabeth said, I mean, the elected leader, if he has control of his or her caucus, and the current one current sh- certainly does, um, he is unaccountable. He will do what he wants. So it is incumbent, and this is what I found so frustrating as, as a former member of the Conservative caucus. I am a fiscal hawk. I am one of the most tight-fisted, cheap SOBs you'll ever meet. And I demand from my government respect for taxpayers the way that I expect my wife to treat her paycheck. <laughs> Although it's her paycheck, she can do with it what she wants. But um, you, know, you know what I mean. I'm mixing my metaphors. The, but the reality is in a, in a majority government, 
If it's not the conservative backbenchers that hold the government to account, the government will be unaccountable. Because try as they will, the Liberals, the NDP, Elizabeth, who does a fantastic job as a representative of the Green Party, just don't have the clout, they just don't have the votes. The current government has 164, I think maybe 163 after I left. They will do what they want. So it's absolutely incumbent upon the backbenches and members of that caucus to hold the government to account. But they're failing miserably because they don't stand up, they bite their tongues, they clap like train seals, and they read from their talking points. And as a result, you see a government that I think, I mean, I supported the, not to get partisan here, but I mean, I supported the Harper government until about a year ago. Um, and, and since then, they've been going off the rails, in my view, and I, I think you all know the files that I'm talking about. And I'm, I'm not in a position to support them unequivocally anymore, and that's why I left the caucus. And, and <laughs> this is my second parliament, and the first one was a minority, and uh, the government performed better because they, had, they couldn't bully their way through the House. They had, to, they had to have at least one other party support their legislation in the last parliament. And uh, ultimately, the government did lose a vote of confidence, and that triggered the, the May 2011 election. But it, it is parliament that holds the government to account. And in a minority parliament, it'll be the opposition. And in a majority government, it's got to be the government backbenchers. A question regarding MLAs not reading legislation or bills. Do any panel members have suggestions for making legislation more readable thereby improving political engagement and access to justice. That's and and would problem. that actually improve those no, things? That's not the problem. With all due respect to whoever asked the question, the bills are, if, if you can't read the legislation and understand it, you shouldn't be in Parliament. And the bills aren't that hard to read. There are many of them uh, that are, uh, you know, you, you get overblown um, hype for a bill that's, well, actually, the Protecting Seniors from Abuse Bill uh, of uh, uh, Stephen Harper's administration is a bill that changes one clause of one section of the criminal code, but, it's, but got more treatment and more debate and more committee time than the 440 pages of Bill C-38, the omnibus budget bill. So uh, the problem isn't that they're not readable. The problem is that why would you read them when you're going to be told how to vote anyway? So it's a career-limiting move to decide to read every bill because you might just decide you can't vote for it. Or you might decide it would be so much better if we accept that amendment from an opposition member. And in the, I've got one quick thing that Stephen Harper has done that really has changed the way Parliament functions. I worked in the Mulroney government. I'm not a very partisan person. But in those days, when a bill went at first reading, through first reading to second reading to committee, Committees were, in those days, in the 1980s, essentially pretty nonpartisan spaces. People checked their partisanship at the door. You roll up your sleeve. You'd accept amendments. On the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, which I worked on every stage of drafting and getting it to the House and everything else, it got to committee. And some, no, uh, some new Democrats and liberals had great ideas to improve the bill. Uh, and I went back to my boss, Minister of Environment. He said, those are great ideas to improve the bill. Huge changes happened in the legislative process. Every bill that went through the parliament, probably from the history, from the dawn of Sir Johnny MacDonald's first bill, between first reading and royal assent, had changes. It's only under Stephen Harper that he's so politicized the legislative process, that even an amendment to repair a drafting error is rejected because he's made it a political uh, battle that you don't want to lose by accepting any opposition amendments. So politicizing committee work 
is, has made the process even more absurd, that you can't have a single... The idea that there wasn't anything wrong with Bill C-38, that in 440 pages changing 70 acts, there wasn't even one amendment that conservatives could accept is really a signal that the system is broken and Parliament is being held in contempt. It's not that they're not readable. It's that it's in no one's interest to read them. What do you think, well, Graham? In fact, it's in the powers that be interest that you don't read them. They, they don't want uh, individuals questioning the legislation. They just want them voting and rubber stamping and pushing it through. Graham Steele? Okay, so here's the reality of life of somebody who's in the Nova Scotia legislature and I assume in Parliament is... Usually, the, the, the thing that you want the most is to get re-elected. And your voters, you learn very quickly, your voters have no idea what is going on in the legislature. And you can work your pretty little brains out to be the best legislator ever, and the people at home don't care. That's not what they're voting for. And so there's an expression that is used in Halifax, and I assume there's an equivalent in Alberta and in Ottawa, and that is there are no votes in Halifax. So if you come from a seat from outside Halifax, you want to spend as little time as possible in Halifax because your voters are all back home. And so you spend your time diligently doing the constituency work, going to bat for people, going to the tees, going to the fire hall, getting to know people, just being around, being friendly, being helpful. Everybody knows who you are. That's why Paul McEwen was able to get elected over and over and over again. He ran for three different parties. He ran as an independent. He just kept getting elected because people wanted Paul McEwen because he was a fighter and developed a reputation for being a great constituency guy, going to bat for all of his people. And so if, if the voters don't place any value on the work you do in the legislature, and if, and I totally agree with this, as Elizabeth says, all the votes are preordained anyway because your party leadership has decided what your party's stance is. Why would you spend any time on the legislation? And over and over and over again, people know that what is valued by the leadership, what's valued by the voters, is the work you do back at home. So I agree in the end. It, it really has very little to do with what's in the legislation or how well it's written. It has to do with what we value as voters. And you may say to yourself, but I'm not like that. Not yeah, but the problem is almost all the other voters are like that. And the fa very fact that you're here tonight makes you, I think, an atypical voter. Most people pay no attention until a few days before an election. They'll tune in. They might see something on TV that they like. They have no idea what the person said or did in the entire previous session of the legislature and their vote is based on whether they know the person, like the person, know somebody in their family, and so on and so on. That is your typical Nova Scotia voter. That's why the answer does not lie in better written. You're describing voters, not citizens. Yeah, to go back to, to talking about I people. I think, as you see, and, and, and the challenge for all of us and for all of you is, is, if I understand your distinction properly, take voters, people who do actually cast a vote, and turn them into a citizen who's thought about the vote and, and, and is making a, a choice on something more than whether they shook somebody's hand. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy proposal, I know. Danny? Can I uh, just, um, if the question is uh, allowing citizens greater access to the information that's being debated and perhaps the uh, create for them the opportunity to participate in some meaningful way, we do have mechanisms for that to happen. Um, 
unfortunately, the processes associated with them are extremely cumbersome. Um, in Nova Scotia, the committee that vets all of our legislation is called the Law Amendments Committee. Sometimes uh, legislation is entered onto the floor and becomes public knowledge for the first time on one day, and interested citizens are receiving it on the morning in the morning newspaper the following day and law amendments may be meeting that afternoon uh, to hear from citizens who are concerned about uh, the legislation now there are that's an extreme example but the window of time between the introduction of bills and the potential participation of citizens is extremely small if you consider uh, huge bills to make them understandable you'll remember C10 from last winter the omnibus bill related to criminal justice that amended countless uh, pieces of legislation uh, the ability for anybody to read and understand all the intersecting implications for that and make reasonable representation was minuscule. I'm aware of one former chief judge from uh, a large uh, province in Canada who was a former, uh, this will narrow it down, uh, <laughs> minister of justice as well, a highly ranked uh, Canadian citizen who really understood the issues wanting to speak to this piece of legislation. And my understanding is, if I have it correct, is that he was given 10 minutes, if he was to appear at all, to discuss this really comprehensive piece of legislation that really would require hours for somebody uh, with his level of understanding to sort of speak to. So there are lots of ways in which I think parliamentary reform can be brought about to sort of create greater access for citizens to be in the discussion. I think we'll, we just have a few minutes left, so we'll go out on this question, which is, I think, probably a fairly decent rap question. Um, and maybe we've touched on some of this already, uh, but this narrows it down a little bit. So if we accept that parties are useful in some ways, what specific changes could be made to make parties more democratic? Brent, I'll start over there. Well, we've talked about some of them. Um, I mean, I believe the current party structure, which mandates that the leader of the party has to sign the individual candidate's nomination papers, just skews the balance irreparably in favor of the leader versus the, the member. Um, I mean, parties, I guess, at their core, at the grassroots, are democratic. I think all parties have conventions, and at those conventions, you have resolutions, and resolutions are debated and then voted upon. That part, I think, works fairly well. But after that is where the system breaks down. Because once your party forms government, uh, there's certainly no obligation for the government that wears the same party banner as that party that just passed a resolution at a convention. There's, there's no uh, obligation that they implement it. And in fact, often party leaders will distance themselves from resolutions that are passed democratically at, at party convention floors. So I think, I'm going off on a bit of a diatribe, but, but I think certainly uh, we have to disengage both, and, and I can say this from, from my former party, is even the party conventions are to some extent controlled. That if the powers that be don't want a resolution making it onto the floor of the convention, there's no way it's going to make it onto the floor of the convention. Any, anything that smacks of social conservatism will not make it onto the floor of a conservative convention under this current leadership. And for many people that's positive, but I think for a debate about democracy that's negative. So I, I believe the leader has too much party. The leader has too much party over his members, over his cabinet ministers, and over the delegates to these conventions. And it's, it's the leader's wings that need to be clipped. Elizabeth. In all parties, not just the Conservative Party of yeah. Canada. Well, the, 
fortunately for me, I'm working with, or unfortunately, because sometimes every now and then I, I, I yearn to have any power at all within the Green Party, but it, it's not to be. Um, the Green Party structure and uh, gr- commitment to grassroots democracy means that our Constitution says I can't refuse to sign someone's nomination papers unless it's supported by three-quarters of the, federally, of the elected federal council, and believe me, they're not people who stand around saying whatever you say, Elizabeth. It's a very difficult thing to, for me to – I can't impose my will, and that's really how it should be. So the Green Party, also our resolutions to convention, are not controlled by anybody in the back room. Resolutions and motions, even ones we think, oh, gee, we don't want this. The only one the, the, only one the media covered in the Toronto convention a couple of years ago was a polyamory motion that made it to the floor. All the motions on carbon taxes and how we're going to fight the climate crisis, there was no way to make to, for anybody in the back room of the party, there isn't any back room in the party, to, to, to control resolutions. So but just to say you can make parties more democratic by controlling, I agree with Brent, controlling the powers of the leader, but still the problem is fundamentally that political parties have too much power and organizational purpose that is actually strangling democracy. I really recommend if people are interested in looking at this in a, in a more academic light, a book by a Professor Emeritus from U of T, Peter Russell, who wrote a little volume called Two Cheers for Minority Government. Mm -hmm. And he points out all the ways in which the centralization of power in the prime minister's office, the centralization of power around a leader of a political party, and the growth in what he calls the well-organized and well-funded political parties is actually causing Westminster parliamentary democracy to be twisted out of shape to such a, a degree that you cannot recognize it as democracy at all. Danny Graham. So three ideas. Uh, one is uh, on the theme that was touched on already, open the nomination process generally. Make sure that all of the nominations are ones that are, if they're to be contested, the, uh, in some instances you see where party leaders actually appoint um, the candidate of choice regardless of whether somebody else wanted to contend for it. Secondly, uh, make um, uh, con- uh, um, Convention resolutions enforceable, more enforceable, not universally enforceable, but create mechanisms to ensure that there is a presumption that something meaningful happens uh, as a result of considered debate by party members. And the third one, which is more discreet, but anyone who's been involved in politics would know this well, there is a concern about, um, on the one hand, a party wants Uh, for the walls to be porous and for people to feel like they can, if they're inspired by a candidate, step into a place where they can support them. On the other hand, there is a risk that a party's uh, orientation and values can be thrown off kilter by instant, name the party, um, people. And so... Um, that's often done as a means for the parties to actually raise money. So there's a, almost a conflict of interest that occurs. You need to pay a party, me- you pay a fee to become a member, feeds the coffers, and you have these instant liberals or instant New Democrats or instant conservatives who show up and uh, disappear after the leadership or the nomination process exists. So if there's some way to strike a better balance in there, I'm not suggesting that we don't that we remove any opportunity for inspiring leaders or candidates to sort of have some swing, but uh, ensure that this doesn't get hijacked in the way that it sometimes, frankly, does. And finally, Graham Steele. 
Uh, probably, I, I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, those are all good ideas. I think probably the best way to make parties uh, democratic is the, the same way that we make our legislatures more democratic and more open to debate, and that is, we have to day after day reassert the values of uh, and the benefits of open-mindedness, mm. uh, flexibility, thoughtfulness, uh, humility, uh, not believing that you have all the answers that. This idea that it works in a university, it works in science, it works in a courtroom, that vigorous debate between principled and knowledgeable people is the best way to get the best answers to the problems that confront us. But instead, we have a system where values like toughness, uh, discipline, certainty, and uh, refusal to change a position... Um, regardless of the evidence, are, are valued. And, and, and so that if anybody hints that maybe they don't agree with everything that everybody in their party says, you know, in the newspapers, you see stories about division, dissent, cracks, factions, leadership challenge, weak leadership, and the, the opposing parties then jump in and say, well, this leader can't even control their own caucus. Why should anybody else listen to them? Instead of saying... Wow, that's a that's a party that's really functioning well and democratically because there's room in that party for debate. And one of the hardest things for, for me, for somebody like me, to realize is that not everybody subscribes to those values of open-mindedness and flexibility and thoughtfulness. There are some people who are ideologues, and it's it's the duty of all of us to fight that as hard as we can. And that is where we'll leave it. Thank you very much, Brent Rathgaber, Elizabeth May, Danny Graham, and Graham Steele.